G'day folks, I'm Billy Pennell. Thanks for joining me for another edition of The Music Show. My current podcast consists of a one-on-one interview with David Gilmore that took place in 1988 prior to Pink Floyd's Melbourne concert. As you'll hear, David was happy to speak candidly about the circumstances that led to his replacement of childhood friend Sid Barrett in Pink Floyd, stories behind Pink Floyd's albums Dark Side of the Moon and Wish You Were Here, Roger Waters' departure from the band and Pink Floyd's first album without him. What were the circumstances surrounding you first joining Pink Floyd? Well, uh, Sid, uh, my predecessor, had gone bonkers. Um, and, uh, Could you explain that just a little bit more? Well, he went mad. I mean, I don't know why exactly, you know. Um, people have made all sorts of... Uh, bandied about all sorts of theories about why they think he went mad. I'm, I'm not at all, at all as clear on it as uh, a lot of people who don't know anything about it are. Um, he was a very close friend of mine from when I was about 14. And he went mad. I mean, I, I watched him go mad. Um, and saw it all the way through, and um, I produced two albums with him afterwards, solo albums for him. Um, and um, I probably know him as well as anyone in this world knows him. But, uh, you know, one, one just doesn't know. I mean, people have said all the stuff about it being acid and all that sort of stuff, which he certainly had done, but, I mean, so had all sorts of other people who didn't go mad. I mean, who knows? I mean, I, I don't understand these things well enough to make hard and fast, you know, Assertions as to exactly why he went mad, but go mad he did. There's no question about that. He did what you would call, what I would call, um, you know, ina- unable to communicate with with people. He did live with his mum. His mum's now moved out on him because she can't stand it. Mm. Have you seen him of late? No, I haven't seen him. I've spoken to uh, his family. I, I speak to his sister Rose and his brother Alan once in a while to make certain that, um, you know, the financial aspects of him receiving royalties and stuff still go, still work all right. What were you doing musically prior to Pink Floyd? Um, well, I had a band before that, um, which... I had had a band before that in England that ran for two or three years and did very well in the Cambridge area. And then I made formed a different band and went and lived in Spain and France for a year and a bit, year and a half, something like that. Um, and then I came back to England and was living in London. I was working, driving a van for a shop in London and trying to get a new band situation together um, when I wasn't working, you know, evenings and weekends and stuff. So were you there initially to help out, hoping that uh, Sid might be able to keep going and then, then it was apparent that he couldn't? Um, there was a rather forlorn hope that we might be able to get Sid to uh, take a back back role, you know, a backroom role, writing songs still and taking part in some on on some sort of a level. Um, but that was a kind of a forlorn hope, as I say. It was uh, it didn't last very long. I don't think anyone really thought it was going to last very long. They just basically asked me because I was probably the only other person they really knew fairly well that could sing and play guitar. Again, you must have been under some sort of pressure when you joined Pink Floyd the first time because Sid just about did the lot. He wrote the songs, sang them. So did you feel as though you had to fill a uh, pretty big pair of shoes? Not really, no. I mean. The, at, the, at that moment in time, the van was pretty rotten. And were they? Yeah, they were, I mean, cause, because of Sid's, uh, you know, condition, 
they had uh, I don't I never uh, the actual year of their time when they really took off and were big in the London clubs um, and their first album coming out I never saw them during that period because I was living in France and Spain at the time so I I'd seen them previous to that when they were like a, a local band doing Bo Diddley songs and one or two original things and then I saw them after that again when they were definitely downhill and they weren't too good so I mean I wasn't that impressed initially when uh, when I actually joined what's interesting is that the hits they had with Sid Arnold Lane and C Emily play were fairly typical top 40 type songs yet when he left after the first album the band changed a bit mm. because there were um, a lot more songs with longer instrumental mm. breaks and the material did change a bit. Was that part of your influence? Um, no, it was, I think that was... I don't think I really exerted any particular influence on the band in the first album, at least. It took quite a while for me to find my feet. Um, I mean, no, the band on stage was very much more like that previously with Sid. I mean, they did lots of long meandering sort of things while Sid was in it, but uh, recording-wise, they were very under the influence of a of a record producer and a, a record company who wanted them to be the next Beatles or whatever. And um, Sid also was very good at writing short, snappy pop songs, you know. <laughs>
the series of albums that you recorded um, just after joining the band all became fairly popular, particularly in the UK and probably mm. in Europe too. But when Dark Side of the Moon came out, of course, you changed from being a highly respected band to an enormously successful band. Was there mm. any inkling of how well that would do? And can you today understand why it has been such a cult record, why it's still so popular? Um, let me see. I, I, the, the records previous that you're talking about, like um, Atom Heart, Mother and the Governor, for example, are not amongst my favourites. Metal records. They're a bit. Metal is amongst my favourites. Metal, I mean, uh, to me, is the start of the path forward for Pink Floyd, really. Um, and uh, Dark Side of the Moon is the next sort of stage on for that, where we actually really got it right. Um, and we got the, the record right, and we got the cover right, and uh, the whole package, you know, the whole thing was very good. You know, the recording, the songs, the lyrics, the idea. Um, the whole thing was a very powerful package, you know, and we knew before we finished it that it was definitely going to do a lot better than anything we'd done before. I mean, we didn't think that it would do that well, but uh, we definitely knew it would do considerably better than anything we'd done before. Because on reflection, it's quite amazing to think that it's still charting, isn't it, 15 yeah. years down mm. the road? It is a bit, yeah. Go away the key. 
There's someone in my head, but it's not me. The other that I'm really interested to ask you about one that probably is um, one of the most interesting for lots of different reasons is Wish You Were Here. Mm. Um, firstly, why did you use an outside singer, Roy Harper, to sing Have a Cigar? Um, well, you, uh, um, you have to understand the way things are or, and were really at, at Abbey Road Studios in London uh, because it's a big complex with which is owned by EMI Records, who, who we were, um, we still are on in Europe, England and Europe, and we were on for the world uh, up and through Dark Side of the Moon. And um, whenever we were in there, there were two other recording studios in operation there at the time, and we would be in one room and they'd either be the Beatles or the Hollies or the Pretty Things or Roy Harper or one, any number of other people um, recording at the same time. And we would get to know all these people, of course, cause, and we'd sit, you know, down in the EMI canteen and chat with these people and stuff, and we got to know Roy quite well. And Roy was always hustling, saying, you know, let me do something, let me sing something, let me write some words for you or something. We were always saying, F off, Roy, I mean, or... No, no, Roy, I mean, sorry, we are on radio. And, um, you know, he, he just obviously came in the room, I can't really remember, he obviously came in the room at a certain point when we were doing that song and said, hey, let me sing that, and we said, oh, all right, off you go, here's the words. And, you know, it wasn't, wasn't a thought-out thing, we didn't think, hey, we must get Roy Harper to sing this song, it's just one of those things that happens on the day, at that moment in time, in the studio, um, and boom, there it was. And we thought, hey, that's okay. Well, did I he... thought it was great. Roger didn't like it that much, actually. Didn't he? Uh, did anybody ever say to you which one's pink? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who said that? I can't remember. Um, it, just, it did happen in the very early days. I mean, when we were a real cult band in the very early days, you know, and in, uh, in touring America in 68, um, the record company hadn't got a clue who we were. The record company didn't know? No, they didn't know. We were put on some strange label called Tower Records, which was um, one of the sort of uh, EMI labels, Capital Records labels in America. And uh, they hadn't really got a clue. They just, you know, you know, they just dumped people onto various labels and said, here, you take this lot and do them. And, uh, yeah, it's quite possible that, um, like, uh, say... It was probably one of the top EMI people in there who we were wheeled in to meet and he didn't know anything, never heard of us. He probably thought that Jethro mm. Tull was the lead singer of, of that band. Yeah, too. it happens very commonly. I bet, it's, I bet it's happened to Jethro Tull, which one's Jethro. I'm sure it has. <laughs> Thank you.
Did you write Shine On You Crazy Diamond for Sid Barrett? Um, yeah, that was written for Sid, yeah. That, I think, is, looking back now, one of your most soulful mm. guitar pieces ever. I suppose it was a lot of your soul in that song for a, a close mm. friend. Yeah. I don't really know whether it would be strictly honest to say that one sits around doing the instrumental passages really thinking about Sid and uh, thinking, oh my God, I must be more soulful because it's Sid. I mean, no, I don't really think But can inadvertently case. turn it that, out that way, can't I? I guess, yeah.
been some of your biggest guitar influences? Because it's hard to pick with you. You, you go through such a lot of changes from mm. album to album. Any mm. particular players that you really, really got stuck into at the beginning? Um, so many. I mean, the, like you say, you, it's it's. I had a very, very wide musical knowledge, and I would learn things. You know, I mean, I would learn bits off West Side Story, written by Leonard Bernstein. You know, he's not exactly a guitar player, but I mean. It, that's just as much an influence as someone else who was a great influence, like Jeff Beck or Hendrix, Jeff Beck, uh, Eric Clapton, um, Howlin' Wolf, uh, Lead Belly, uh, Twelve String Acoustic. You know, he's as much of an influence as uh, you know John Fay, um, Eric Darling. Um, yeah, millions of them. Just two. I mean, I, I, you know, I just I never really Hank Marvin never. All those people, you know. There was a bit of a shock after the Wall album had been and gone because there was no more Richard Wright. Why was that? Um, well, basically because uh, um, he had been not contributing fantastically well to what we were doing in the time, and he'd, him and Roger were not getting on at all well, and Roger basically pushed him out. Was that hard for you to take? Um, well, at the time, it was, um, I felt it was wrong at the time, and I told Rick that I thought it was wrong, and I told Roger that I thought it was wrong. That, um, but I told Ricky that he ought to stand up for himself a bit, but he didn't really stand up for himself fully, and um, there's not a lot one can do. Um, I told Rick he would have my support if he wanted to, but, you know. These things are very, very complicated mm. within a band that's been going all those times. I guess the problems that were heading your way with Roger Waters came to a head during the Final Cut album, and from what I've read, you weren't particularly pleased with some of the material. You thought it was a bit weak. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Roger, during the Wall album, we had no... The, the Wall, making the Wall album was pretty good. We had a good time. Um, we had Bob Ezrin with us, who was a very tough person, pushy person, and uh, it was good having him there because I think there would have been a lot of arguments. I think Roger was getting close to that point, but because Bob was there and could uh, give, um, you know, an unbiased opinion on things, it helped a lot. It helped a lot towards making it a good record because um, lots of stuff got thrown out. Lots of stuff was written during the making of it and was added to it, good stuff. Um, and a vast amount of work was done. Um, we then went on into the, the wall film. Um, that actually had as much to do with uh, the difficulties as the Final Cut album, because um, that was another difficult period with uh, Roger doing things that he really shouldn't have done. And then the Final Cut album, as I say, when, when he started bringing in songs that we had turned down for the wall album, that I just didn't think were good enough. I just didn't think it was basically a good enough song. And we, one of them we tried two or three different ways. We kept trying it. never seemed to get any more interesting. But it still got on there, you know. I, yeah. Did Roger decide to quit the band because the final cut didn't do all that well? No, no, I don't think so. Um, Roger spent the rest, the, the next year or two, trying saying, I think we should call it quits, I think we should jack it in and say enough is enough, we've had a very good run. 
And I said, well, fine, that's your opinion, but it isn't my opinion. I've had a good run, I know, but I still want to have more of a good run, being a greedy sort of chap. Um, um, and he said, well, I think we should pack it in. And I said, well, I don't think we should pack it in. And uh, it went on like this for a couple of years. Um, I think he, and he kept saying, well, when are you going to do something? What are you going to do? And I said, I don't know, when, when I'm good and ready and when I feel confident about it, I'll make a suggestion to the band. And, you know, because I knew Roger wasn't going to start making a suggestion about going in. And he sort of grumbled and groaned about it. And I think eventually to try and make me make a move, he said, right, well, I'm quitting then. Um, and sent letters to EMI and CBS Records saying I've left the band and stuff. December 85. Um, and we said, well, you know, it's your decision if that's what you want to do. You know, so be it, you know. Sorry to lose you and all that, but... Were you hurt by the litigation and the fighting over the name? Um, I just thought it was stupid and unnecessary. Um, I always knew that uh, we'd win it. And I just couldn't see any point in it. I mean, it's, um, I, I, there's no precedent, really, for some one person leaving a band and saying to the others, you can't carry on. There's no precedent for someone um, leaving an organisation that they have spent the best part of 20 years building up and telling the other people you're not allowed to work anymore. You, there's no judge, in, I can't see any judge in the world saying, listen, you've spent 20 years of your life working, building this thing up, and now you're not allowed to anymore because he doesn't want to do it. I mean... It just doesn't make. It just doesn't have any logic in my brain whatsoever, and so I've always just maintained that and said, "We'll do it, you know, we're the the way we want to do it." And uh, uh, Rogers has not actually done anything that prevents us doing anything. He he did start these court actions, which, which everyone is very well aware of, to try and uh, do something, but um, nothing actually has ever even started yet. I mean, and now it's over, so... It's, we've, we've now, we think, reached a fairly... not amicable, but a reasonable settlement, so... It's good to hear. I believe you recorded part of the new album on your houseboat, is it true? Yeah. Was that a good environment, musically, for you? Like, is being on the water... <clears throat> being on, on the, the water is very nice. It's with the, the... I bought a houseboat, we've built it, we've turned it into a, into a recording studio, um, so... It works very well. It was a very pleasant place. We did all the basic stuff there, yeah. Did you deliberately not make the new album a concept album? Um, no. We thought about concepts an awful lot, and then I decided it wasn't worth worrying about. Um, you know, I'd rather just make a good record and see. And I thought, well, maybe if near the end of it all, a concept, something that ties it together comes, we can... We can angle things a little bit, steer them a little bit. Because that's what's happened before on some occasions, you know. Um, Animals, for example, wasn't a concept album until it was nearly finished, you know. Um, uh, it, just, it just never really came up. It never really quite fitted. And um, I didn't want to force it, so... I felt as though some of the earlier Pink Floyd albums had very strong lyrics, but not always the music to sustain a strong lyric. Yeah. I don't think that applies on the new record. Again, we are conscious of having a better balance this time with better constructed songs. Well, this, this, is, this has been my beef for years. I mean, always. It's been one of my, you know, beefs about what we do is that the balance 
has to be maintained. I've said it hundreds of times. It's ad, ad nauseum I've said it, but, um, you know, it's... Uh, yes, I, the balance between between the words and the music, I think, is a very important thing, and that's uh, what I think we lost very much on the final cut. But you've got back on the new album? I hope so. I th that's, what we that's what I work towards, anyway. That's what I attempt to do. There's a more positive theme, too, to some of the songs on the new record. Mm. On the Turning Away, for instance, mm. has a very positive theme. Who helped you with the lyrics on that? Anthony Moore, a guy, a friend of mine from England. He, uh, he co-wrote three of the songs with me, Learning to Fly, um, Turning Away and The Dogs of War. Uh, Learning to Fly and the, On the Turning Away were his basic concepts. Um, he, it, they were his original idea, but um, they got changed around an awful lot, millions of rewrites, and basically the, the, the last verses of those things were completely steered to change it into a more positive thing, and I wrote the last verses of them. It's a sin that somehow Light is changing to shadow And casting its shroud over all we have known All the world how the ranks have grown Driven on by a heart of stone
the sheer coincidence of learning to fly may apply to the fact that you are actually learning to fly? And no, it's not coincidence at all. It, that's what it comes from. It's because, it comes because uh, he was... Uh, um, we'd have him down at the boat every day. I mean, I said, the only way this is going to work, if we're going to write anything together, is it's going to be a low a low success rate thing, so we need a lot of stuff, you know. And if I said, you know, if you write 20 songs for me and you use one, you know, you get to use the others yourself anyway. So, was, um, so I said, I'd li like you to actually be there and work, and I paid him as well as, you know, giving him a percentage on the songs, obviously, for the for writing. He was, I was actually paying him wages to actually come and sit at the boat um, and work every day, right, you know, four or five days a week. And he, there would be days when he would arrive down at the boat um, and start working and say, well, where's Dave? And they'd say, oh, he's gone flying this morning. And he'd go, oh, shit, you know, why does he keep doing that, you know? <laughs> and uh, so I think one of these mornings, well, while he was sitting there frustrated because I wasn't around because I'd gone flying, he, uh, he came up with that idea. Have you got your own plane? Yeah, myself and Nick share one, a single-engine thing. And obviously you're finding it very enjoyable, very relaxing. Yeah, fabulous fun. It's great. Um, Dogs of War on your solo album four years ago you wrote a song called Cruise which was your fear of a nuclear confrontation mm. 
Do you still occasionally ponder on things like that? Is Dogs of War again a, another thought you might have had about the possibility of something like that occurring? Um, yeah, I mean, I think about those things all the time. There's, there were two on that, so um, Out of the Blue and, and Cruise were both about that sort of thing from slightly different angles. Dogs of War is more of, you know, it's more about... It's, it's really mostly about, um, I should think, political mercenaries, really. You know, the, the Oliver North of this world and stuff like that, I think, is what it came out of, mostly. There's a great bluesy feel on the instrumental part of that. That's a uh, really enjoyable passage for mm. me because it sees you going back, to, I suppose, to your roots and having a Hammond mm. organ in there was great because Hammond organ isn't used that much these days, is it? No, no, but uh, we... I, I think it's still one of the great instruments, I mean, the Hammond organ.
Since this interview with David Gilmore in 1988, two former members of Pink Floyd have died. Sid Barrett in 2006 at the age of 60, and two years later Richard Wright, who was 65. Two further Pink Floyd albums are released along with two David Gilmore solo albums. Thanks so much for sharing this interview with me. There'll be another all-music podcast coming up soon on Billy Pinnell, The Music Show. In the meantime, take care of each other and love the music. (laughs) 